Welcome, everyone, to episode 38 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week, coming all the way from California, is Alexandria Jabbar. Now, Alexandria is a former paramedic for Riverside County. She's still a paramedic instructor at a few different schools. But what she's concentrating on right now is death and grief education, something that we really don't talk about a whole lot. So on this episode, we discuss being on the scene and what we can do to help family members start that grieving process and kind of assist them along the way. And she also talks about the disenfranchised grief, which is that grief that we have, but it may not be okay to talk about that with others. Like we're kind of afraid that they're not feeling the same thing, so we just keep it quiet. Well, we discussed that too with, on this episode. So without further ado, let me bring her in here, Alexandria Jabbar. How's it going this afternoon? Thank you for the invite, and it's going well. How are you? I'm uh, I'm okay. I can't complain. It's probably warmer where you're at than where I'm at. Yeah, we've had some pretty hot, hot days. It's definitely drawn a lot of people to the beach. Are they even allowed to go to the beach right now? Well, depends on the county. Um, yeah, there were a few in Orange County, which, uh, I think our governor is putting a lockdown to tomorrow. So nice, nice. Um, yeah, I tried to go to my beach here in Ohio and yeah, there wasn't one. Not so much. Not so much. So anyway, anyway, I digress. Let's dive into it. So (laughs) death and grief educator. Yeah. Is that that had to be a pretty weird uh, high school counseling conversation? <laughs> I wanted to be a photographer when I was in high school. Believe it or not. So. All right. That you just and somewhere you took a left turn. Yeah. Yeah. And then and it, then a few other turns. I took a lot of left turns, um, but yeah, I just kind of I. I like teaching and I think there's a lot of benefit. There's a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's, there's just so much that comes out of, 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 um, educating and taking a good course and understanding concepts. And I just kind of took this information and just decided I wanted to start teaching it. It's not the, uh, I mean, when you think about teaching, uh, probably wasn't the first thing that came to mind. There had to be something more to it why you thought that this was important and probably undertaught, I imagine. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny I ended up, you know, for the longest time I kind of thought it was just this big accident. Like, I didn't really know how I ended up here. Um, but as with all things, when you kind of connect the dots looking backwards, it all kind of starts to make sense. And so I would say probably one of the most one of the most obvious things I did recently was um, I finished my master's in uh, the emphasis. It was, it was a master's in mental health with an emphasis in grief and bereavement. And I did my focus on first responders and death communication, death notification, that kind of stuff, because that was a huge deficiency I saw in my practice and, you know, with the people I worked around and also with my teaching, I noticed that that was just something we didn't teach. I teach at a paramedic program and It was one of those things that when I got into the field, I thought they were going to teach me to do. I thought that was something they were going to teach me to do as an EMT. 
and I laugh about that now because it's a very naive and cute thought, but they never taught me that. And they didn't teach me it when I got hired as an EMT or when I went to paramedic school. And just one of those things that we were just kind of expected to learn. And um, so when I got to an opportunity to finish my master's and I found this program, I thought, okay, well, this is, this is what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to create the curriculum that's been missing this whole time. So if you can remember all the way back when, because I remember way, you know, years ago for me, what did they teach you anything at all about how, you know, the proper way, what to say when you're on a scene and somebody dies? So for EMT school for me, it was about 17 years ago and there was nothing. Um, Absolutely nothing. I want to, I do know that when, and to give credit to my, to my medic program, we did have a conversation about it in our ethics class, but that conversation just left, you know, me wanting more. It wasn't, uh, it was more of an ethical dilemma of what do you do in this situation? Not as much say this, not that, um, you know, this is what to expect. And, And to be fair, I also worked in a system that up until a year ago, transported every just about every single cardiac arrest so there was no staying on scene for 20 to 30 minutes there was no seeing if the efforts were futile and pronouncing if it didn't work so there really wasn't the opportunity to do it and we just it was just always somebody else's job it was always the doctor's or the nurse's job when you left the scene every time i imagine because that's quite different than what i'm used to but I have to imagine that when you leave, that family member has to think there's still hope. Yes, they're still in the uh, the denial or the bargaining phase of their grief. Okay, so that just—I mean—it's almost unnecessary in ways. But you're not—you're not doing that anymore. I mean, they changed the protocols, right? Well, they changed the pro. <laughs> Uh, you know, they changed the protocol in this county and that, that was really a good opportunity. So what I do actually within, you know, this county feels like, you know, this county basically raised me as I was a baby, 18 years old. And I've, um, had many relationships within my work and social circle with people in different agencies. So what I've been able to give back to them is taking, taking this course back to them as they adopt this new protocol and this new cultural shift, because, the problem with it was, is that it was pushed out without any regard to the big elephant that was going to be standing in that room and without any regard to how to manage the family, what to say to deescalate situations, what to keep our scene safe and how to comfort the family really, because whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to agree with it, it's there. Like we are a part of their grieving process and we do make a huge difference in how they grieve. Nice. Now, going back to where I think I was in school, um, and I'm not sure if you've heard this or not, but uh, really brief, what they, what I remember what they told us was when somebody passes, you actually have to, you can't say that to them. You have to tell the family member that they have died. And the reasoning for that is simply so they don't have any false hope, like feel like the get confused and feel like they passed out or something else that it's, no, you have to let them know they're dead. They're not, they're not gone. They are dead. Is that something you've ever heard or familiar with? 
Yes, and that is accurate information. Um, that is the proper way to deliver the news. The I, I feel uh, like I, I feel like one person years ago made that mistake, and from that, like everybody else is like, oh, just don't tell them you're dead. You can't say they're gone or they're <laughs> they or they. Here's where it's tricky. So if um, so if I'm in a social setting and I'm talking to somebody casually or getting to know somebody and somebody asks, oh, where are your parents? Like, whereabouts, you, where, where'd you grow up? Where are your parents now? I'm going to say, my mom passed away when I was 18. My dad lives overseas. I might, it, it's just something you can graze over and just say passed away. There's no emotional attachment to them and my parent, the person that's dead. There's no um, heightened level of stress going on in that situation. It's a very casual informal personal social element you can say passed away all you want in the setting where you are delivering fatal news where it's the first time they're going to hear confirmation it has to be as clear and undeniable as possible because when we say things like they're not responding to our treatments or they didn't respond to our treatments we had to end resuscitation efforts. They passed away. We lost them. They're no longer with us. Whatever euphemism you want to come up with that makes you more comfortable with delivering the news, because that's really where it comes from. It comes from the sense of discomfort saying the word died and dead to them. You're risking causing unnecessary confusion for them. And when we confuse them, it, it might only last a few seconds to a couple of minutes for them to really process it but it does create this lack of trust between us and them um it adds unnecessary stress that they could do without considering the fact that they've just been told their husband or wife or child has died and it's just the only it's the only language they're going to understand under moments of acute stress What would be, assuming that I'm going to be that guy that has to give them the news, how should I approach it? What what do you recommend saying and, and kind of going about that that would um, not necessarily let the family down easy, but but not, uh, you know, say what you need to say, but, but also be helpful kind of long term? Sure, because delivery is definitely still important here. And I think it matters. So if you're, if you're walking on a scene where the, the, the patient is clearly um, beyond a point of even trying to work up, so obvious signs of death, rigor, lividity, all that, you want to tell them right away, I'm sorry, your so-and-so is dead. There's nothing we can do here. You know, let them start the grieving process at that point. You tell them immediately, right away. In the case where we are showing up, and we're giving it 20 to 30 minutes to see if they respond to your treatment, you want to start breaking it to them early. So what you can do is I always recommend um, minute zero, whoever is kind of being that advocate, that person who is talking and checking in with a family member is going to tell them, this is what we have. They're not breathing on their own. They don't have a pulse. This is what we're doing to try and fix that. Um, we're going to be here for a while. Okay, we're doing everything that the hospital does. 
we're doing here and we're doing it better because we're doing it right now. There will be no delay and no interruptions in the treatment. So this is their best chance, okay? So that automatically gets ahead of the family questioning, why aren't you leaving? Especially when the ambulance shows up. And you're, you're giving them that expectation of we're gonna be here up to 30 minutes, but I'm gonna tell you everything or 20 minutes, whatever you wanna tell them. Um, but I'm gonna be telling you everything going on. And so as the call starts to progress, there's certain markers you can use to decide whether or not this is the efforts are futile. And part of it is uh, getting a better history to find out was this witness, was this unwitness, when was last known. Um, well time, um, you might find uh, that there, if you use end title in, in your practice, you might find that the end title will either start rising because they're responding or it'll stay low and not move. Um, you might find that they go from a, um, maybe they're in a ventricular rhythm and they stay in a ventricular rhythm or they go from a really fine V-fib into asystole and you never see them come out of it. And that tells you, okay, they're not responding to what we're doing for them. So you kind of have to take that information and, and translate it to the family and say, okay, we did this and it didn't work so far. You know, we've done this and it hasn't worked so far. We're still doing this. We're going to still work for another few minutes. So check in with them every, you know, whatever's comfortable for your practice, because it's going to change for every agency or county, depending on what their standard is. And so what I'm getting at is you want to tell them at the very beginning that this is very um, critical and that the circumstances are very serious, that they're not breathing, they don't have a pulse. And then as you start getting closer to determining that, you know, you're probably going to be pronouncing them, you have the opportunity to tell them, okay, we've done this, 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 and that, and it hasn't worked. We're going to try one more round or one more, you know, medication. And if it doesn't work, we're going to have to stop. And so you, up until then you can avoid the word dead and die. So okay? you're almost given like play by play throughout. You're building them up to it. Yes. Because at that point we still don't know if we're going to get a pulse back, but we do know that this is a serious situation. Even if, if the best chance, you know, case scenario is five weeks later, they walk out of the hospital, you know, with neurological intact and go back to their lives it's still going to be a significantly big event that happened to that family that they're gonna grieve and that they're, it's a traumatic experience. So we're building them up to it. And so it's okay to avoid the word then died up until the point that you're ready to pronounce them. Because at the point that you say, I'm sorry, your husband is dead. Um, they're not going to hear anything after that. So you wanna make sure that you give them everything you can leading up to it. and at the point that you determine that you're going to pronounce them, um, make sure that, you know, you've called, if you work in an agency that requires that you call base before you, you end field resuscitation, do that. And then um, let, you know, invite the family, give the family the opportunity to go say goodbye and say, okay, we're the, we've let the hospital know that this doesn't work. We're going to be stopping soon. Do you want a chance to say goodbye before we do? Because to the family, and this I learned from um, a physician in Florida named Dr. Antebi, who you might've heard of, um, but he says that he likes to bring in the, he likes to invite the family to say goodbye before they end resuscitation because what he's recognized is that to the family, they're not dead until they pronounce and call time of death. To us, they've been clinically dead for however long. So it's a little bit of a perspective shift. That is, that is something new to me, but it makes absolute sense.
it's not always going to work. I mean, every scene's going to be different, you know, um, but it's something to take in consideration because I would have, until I learned that from him, I would have always thought that it would be, um, that it would work the other way around is you pronounce them and then you allow them to go in there and say, you know, their, their piece. Do you let the family kind of stay in that same room and, and watch or, or have them go into a separate room and get information or I mean, is there a rhyme or reason either way or a preference or it just kind of depends on a, a situational dependent? So it, it tends to be heavily dependent on the crew and the person running it. And obviously if you're in a very small working environment, uh, you can't have the whole family in there, but I always encourage people to consider allowing whoever it is that you're getting information from. Okay. Ask them where they would like to stand invite them to be in the room if they want to be but don't force them and don't force them out don't force them either way so if you are the captain or extra paramedic or whoever it is that's talking to this family member you introduce yourself and you say okay my, my team's going to be we're going to be doing everything that we can we're going to be doing a lot over here i if do you want to be in this room i can allow you to stay in here as long as you don't interrupt what they're doing Otherwise, if you feel more comfortable stepping outside and standing in the hallway, I can make sure that, you know, I check in with you and get you all the information that you need. So it's not so much a sense of um, pushing them out one way or another, but giving them, inviting them the choice. Giving them options. Giving them options. So long as they are uh, being compliant. Sure. I follow you there. Now... Let's and, and I know you had years of experience of doing this. You pronounce them, you pick up all your equipment, you go back to the station, and it's chow time. And you just sit down and you eat like nothing has ever happened. Yes. Yes. Now that brings me to a term that I've never heard of before. Our our mutual friend Ben. Yeah, uh, Ben Brown. Yep. Uh and he, he said, when he said, you know, he recommended me talking to you, he said, she talks about this disenfranchised grief and it's, and it just is mind blowing. So now that I set you up and put you up really high, would you, <laughs> would you mind talking about that? And just how we, how we go back to the, you know, the station and, and, you know, we just went through a traumatic event to an individual, to a family, but yet we're going to have our chicken wings. Yeah, um, I definitely have, uh, I used to find that actually pretty entertaining because um, I would, when, when I started working, so I've, I've worked the 24s and 72s and all that in the fire station. And um, when I was working some of the short, when I, when I ended up working for an ambulance company, um, my most recent position we we'd have some short shifts that were available and so I could work from 5 a.m to 1 p.m and still have like my whole day ahead of me and do normal stuff like go grocery shopping cook dinner and see my family and go to a movie it was just it was so bizarre to me that 12 hours earlier you could be doing whatever it is that came with that day and then flip modes into a normal life and even then even when you didn't go home, you know, it was always like, all right, what's for dinner? What are we going to eat? So appetite usually didn't um, get interrupted for me anyways. But the other half of um, what I educate on 
is the fact that grief is not limited to the family. And I think that I, and I, I saw this in myself anyways, that our inability, because, and let me at least kind of throw this back, you know, story in there is that my engagement with the family when I was practicing was very minimal. I avoided them at all costs. It wasn't the mangled patient or the dead patient or the dead baby that bothered me. It was the family that bothered me. And they were the hard ones that were, you know, difficult for me to face. And I know that that discomfort came from a lack of understanding and a lack of preparation and training for those moments. So my MO was to avoid them altogether. And um, I suspect even with myself that our lack of ability to show up and be there for their grieving process also comes from our own inability to be there for ourselves with ours and maybe a lack of understanding as well. So what I'm getting at is this, is that there are occasions that we do grieve the loss of our patients and you don't really recognize it as that um, because we're not number one, the calls, you know, the job's not supposed to get to us. The calls aren't supposed to get to us. Um, we're supposed to go right back to whatever it was that we were doing before. And, you know, most of the time you could run on a, um, on a call and it doesn't bother anybody, but one person. So then you feel isolated in it and you don't know why it's bothering you. You don't know why you keep thinking about it. You don't know why it, it just, you can't really shake that. And it's, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I be grieving them? I don't even know them. I know nothing about them, but there is something there. Um, between you and that patient and um, it's 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 a grief and when it's not acknowledged it's not socially accepted or recognized it's a disenfranchisement we're being disenfranchised and we probably disenfranchise ourselves more than anybody else but what Ben caught on to when I was discussing it was what what caught his attention because I talk about these different types of grief and what I what I chime in on is that in my research I found that disenfranchised grief, or sometimes it's called um, unresolved grief is another word for it sometimes, but disenfranchised grief is tied to occupational burnout, compassion fatigue, and mental stressors for physicians, nurses, first responders. And it all comes back to it partially comes back to that as well as a couple of other things, but disenfranchised grief is one of them. So what are, I guess, some of the recommendations for that you would have when, when we come back to the station and something is kind of messing with us, it's not sitting well with us. It's, you know, but we, that it's still kind of taboo a lot of times in some places to talk about it, mm -hmm. at least, you know, even around the kitchen table there. So what are, do you have any recommendations on, on where to go, what to do, how to, how to get through that? Well, I think this is one example of where education can be therapeutic in itself because, and, and Ben's such a great example, testimony to it, because when we can put a word to our experience, we can start to understand it. 
And when we can start to understand it, we start to process it instead of resisting it and going, why do I feel this way? And getting mad that you feel that way or frustrated with yourself. And then when you process it, you just, you, you work through those emotions, you accept it. And, um, you know, it's really the step of, it's really the, the act of naming that pain. That's the first step to, to letting it go and getting through it. And so I think first of all, knowing that that word exists, knowing that that's actually a thing, like the fact that you can't stop thinking about this call that's been stuck in your head. And, and there could be a couple of other things. This is one factor in multiple pieces that come together to collectively make up, you know, the mental health of um, anybody. Responder, you know, um, there's a lot of things that go into it, but this is one part of it. And when we can understand it, we, we have a lot more grace for ourselves. And, um, yeah, that's a big one is we have a lot more grace for ourselves. And then, you know, talking to someone is the biggest thing. It's the number one biggest thing. I am always an advocate for talking to a therapist. Um, I have a couple, I like them all. And, you know, I mean, I just, I, I just try and throw that out there to just normalize it. You know, like it, I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with people where I mentioned I have a therapist. It's like, oh, I have one too. It's like, cool. You know, it's, it's getting more normal to bring up and that's what we need to do. And, um, but sometimes, um, you're not there yet and that's okay too. And it's okay to reach out to a, a friend, a peer, a person you work with to talk to about it. You know, I had a buddy not too long ago. He texts me and goes, Hey, you're around for a beer later. It's like, yeah, I'll be around. Okay, cool. Had a rough, rough couple of days at work. We had this, you know, gnarly peds call. I'd love to write about you. And so we did, we sat at a bar and we had a beer and we talked about it. And so in a sense, like I'm not, you know, as a behavioral health activist, uh, advocate, of course, you know, the abuse of alcohol is not um, recommended in any way, but I can't help, but like the fact that if, if, if the beer, if grabbing a beer with someone is the conduit to getting another person there to listen to you, go for it. You know what I mean? It's that continuing, you know, turning into you, the, being dependent on that alcohol is yeah. what is a problem. But is that one time, get it all out? Yeah, I mean, that's, we've done, <laughs> I think we've had a lot of that over the last year where I'm at. We, we, and, you know, it's something that happens. I can think back to, you know, over my career, I can think back to so many times where it was like, hey, let's grab a beer. And, you know, it, it, it sometimes just gets presented as that. It's not as obvious as when my friend just told me the example I gave you. It's, hey, we haven't seen each other in a while. Or, hey, you're around for a beer. You grab the beer. And then that just kind of organically comes up. So I have a hard time saying, oh, no, all alcohol is bad. No, not all alcohol is bad. But what is your intention behind it? Is it sitting at home alone, trying to numb away every emotion that you're feeling because it doesn't make you comfortable to experience it? Or is it what is allowing you this comfortable place to open up to a friend that's going to help you make sense of what you just experienced. Exactly. Now, big picture wise, I know you, you believe that we're not going starting the grieving process correctly with the family on scene. And we're certainly also not talking about it when we get back to the fire stations. How do we how do we fix this in the big picture? I mean, is this a just an overall national curriculum change to where we say, hey, you need to just add these portions? It doesn't have to be very long, 
but we need to talk about it and prepare our individuals on how to properly talk about this to the family, but also amongst ourselves as well. Um, so we're looking at uh, two relative concepts, but different modules, I'd say, you know, so you've got the one that probably belongs in the intro to EMS portion, whether it's EMT or paramedic and that self-care and, you know, um, personal safety first and taking care of your mental health and all that stuff like that, that probably belongs there as far as defining these terms and how these calls and explain that it's okay that you you could go your whole career and it's not going to affect you. And then all of a sudden it does. And I've had a couple of people share that with me as well, where they're like, man, I I've spent 28 years running on these calls and, you know, suddenly one peds arrest and I can't sleep for the first time in my life. Like I've just got insomnia. Where did this come from? And what the, the truth is, is that one call just kind of, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. He compensated, 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 fine. And then all of a sudden it just erupted probably a bunch of other stuff that just hadn't been handled. So you've got these, you got to kind of normalize what's, um, or make it aware what's common. So people don't feel alone in it when it happens to them. And then the other module would belong in, um, in a, let's say with, um, best example is in medic school, they do mega codes. They learn how to work up a resuscitation. And I teach mega codes right now in my paramedic program. It's frustrating because they're all designed the same. They all get four different rhythms, two forms of electrical therapy, and one type of drip or vasopressor at the end of it because every patient gets ROS. Every single patient gets ROS. And there is no training for what it looks like when, I mean, there's discussion about it, but there is no scenario, certainly no test on what it looks like when the patient isn't responding to your treatments, when the, when the efforts are deeming futile, when um, it's time to start preparing the family. There is no discussion on what to say and what not to say. There is no guidance on when to start um, breaking the news or even uh, how to overcome the challenges that are gonna happen that with remaining on scene. None of that is being done right now. So it would need to exist in a couple of different areas, but it comes down to education, yes. And it comes down to standardizing the curriculum and it comes down to affecting policy changes at the state and national level. So if, if it were up to me, yes, I would change it all across the board. Perfect. It's a it's a very simple thing to do, right? Oh, I wouldn't even know where to start, but you know what? This is my first time putting it out there, like, you know, on this plat, you know, on a platform or, you know, discussing I, it with someone else and I'm going to let, let's make it happen. Why not? I, yeah. You know, I, I remember the struggle to get any type of cancer curriculum in our fire class in Ohio. It was just, you know, it made perfect sense to me. Like, why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we letting these kids from the very start know how significant a problem it is? And the pushback and the struggle to just get, I think, an hour was monumental. So I I can't imagine how this would be. But the fact that you're out there and you're talking about this, I think you just you need to talk about it more. That's, that's where all this cancer stuff really came from. And I, I think the mental health is right with it. The more we talk about it, the less taboo it gets. You know, the more comfortable we're able to actually discuss these type of things. So yeah, it's un- and it, it. Go ahead, sir. No, it's just unfortunate that it's not going to be 
you know, instant snap of the finger. But, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I could see even in my career how the more you talk about things, the easier it gets. I mean, it actually happens. Yeah. And I've, I've been surprisingly patient with this. You know, this is something that has, has been something I've noticed for a very long time. It's something I've struggled with personally. It's something I sought out to change. I'd say almost five years ago now, like actively said, okay, I'm getting my master's in this. This is what I'm going to do with it. And I literally got off. I mean, before I jumped on with you, I was teaching my medic students four different rhythms, two forms of electrical therapy. <laughs> every patient gets rosk and I'm literally going in every single week and being part of what I know the problem is because I know it's just going to take time to change it. There is just only so much time in a paramedic program to get all the curriculum that they need. I know that what I am advocating is to the people who are making the decisions, it's not their top priority. But my argument is that if the national, if you look up the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival rate or the mortality rate, I should say, how many people die from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? It's upwards of 90% still. So you're telling me that we have no room in our curriculum to prepare them for what the outcome is going to be 90% of the time. It makes no sense to me. So, but that said, um, I, I do know that uh, I, I have talked to an empty room before. I have talked to a room of people who just, you know, whether it's at a dinner table or in a, a classroom or whatever setting it might be, and you just feel like people aren't really seeing you or don't really see what the big deal is. And, and slowly that changes, but it happens slowly. And then slowly but surely you realize, oh, people were paying attention, but you just have to just continue to be that. You just have to continue to persevere despite what anybody says. And then those people will, will find you. Absolutely. Yeah. Baby steps. I think that's what a lot of this is, is baby steps. It's definitely going to be a marathon. So, and I can't run. (laughs) <laughs> so i'm good just going at a nice slow turtle space nice all right well let me get you out of here with a few other things um i'm gonna do what i call the 25 questions i've got a oh. list of, of 25 random i'm not going to make you go through all of them that would be rude of your time to be very inconsiderate but i will have you just pick some numbers and we'll go through them um, but before I do that, since you are on the West Coast, I always get to ask a bonus question for that. And that's simply, when was the last time you had an In-N-Out burger? Oh, probably a month ago. I thought about it yesterday, though. I you thought about it yesterday. I did think about it yesterday. Man. Do you remember your order? No. Do I remember my order? Yes. Probably... Probably a three by three with grilled and raw onions. Wow. Yeah, I like I like the burgers. You're not messing around. Oh no, I don't go to In and Out to like. I mean, when I'm trying to you know do the low carb thing, I'll get it lettuce wrap, but no. No, it's okay. An- I, animal style fries too. I, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I uh, no, I like I like talking about In and Out burgers whenever I'm with my West Coast friends and. So either throw that in somewhere or I'll do some random wrestling reference because I'm a wrestling nerd. Anyway, 
I digress. How about you pick a number and we'll go over that? Seven. Everybody says seven. Okay. Thirteen. Thirteen. What is your favorite movie? Ooh. That one's hard because I'm not a huge movie buff. But the one that comes to mind is um, the Pixar movie Inside Out. Oh, of course. Of course you'd say that. (laughs) A mental health specialist would go there. You know, and before I'd even kind of gone in this direction and and changed my my degree um, focus, from emergency management to into mental health, I I loved that movie, but um, or maybe it was around the time. But either way, I, I had an opportunity to revisit it uh, about a year and a half ago because I'm in my um, I'm getting my doctorate in psychology right now, depth psychology, and one of the first papers we wrote, we were invited to take a movie or a book or a poem or something like basically anything of our choice and analyze it from a depth psychological perspective. And so I got to go back and watch that movie from a completely different lens. And it was just mind blowing how well researched it was and how many different concepts are in there. And, you know, if if you're, if any of your listeners are um, familiar with um, Carl Jung, there's a lot of stuff about like the complexes and the conscious and the unconscious and all that stuff comes up quite a bit. So I, I really enjoyed that paper actually. And people are like, you get to watch cartoons in your doctoral program. I'm like, yeah, that's what I signed up for. <laughs> nice. So there's but, maybe, maybe I have a chance then. You do. I mean, it's gotten more fun. The higher you go, it's just more expensive. Yeah. I'm I'll stick with my community college. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that either. Bunch, bunch of certificates. Yeah, good to nothing go. Nothing wrong with that either. All right, well, perfect. Good movie. All right, go ahead and pick the next one. How about 19? Do you have a special place you like to visit regularly? Uh, when I can get out to the desert. I, I don't get out there often enough, but yeah, the desert is a very special place when, um, so we have a Joshua Tree National Park that's about an hour and a half away from where I live and the first time I went out there I actually didn't stay the night because it was like 20 degrees and I did not come prepared and I was like nope not doing this bye guys had a beer left but it is the like it's saturated in stars you can see the Milky Way with your you know the naked eye and just so many shooting stars and it's just very um I definitely connected with that area nice now you could have said your favorite album is Joshua Tree by U2. I could have. You could have. No, there's. I think there's a famous uh, recording studio there too. I know the Foo Fighters have done stuff there. The Integatron, maybe. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right. a pretty neat place. So, if my listeners wanted to find out more information about you, not in a stalker way. <laughs> where would they uh where would they be able to track you down at uh emergencyresilience.com is my website um it's kind of the landing page right now for where courses will be added probably by the end of the summer those are in the works right now and um i'm most active on instagram followed by twitter so also emergency resilience um yeah just reach out to me there 
I love engaging with people, talking to them, learning from what uh, their opinions are. And, and you know, one thing I, I also like to welcome is um, a difference of opinion, you know, like a, a disagreement even. I think that there's a lot that can be learned. And so I always welcome that kind of conversation as well. All right. No MySpace, though? No, no MySpace. At least I hope not. I'm pretty sure I deleted that years ago. Oh, gosh, I hope so. I know. I can only imagine what mine would look like. Back when I was young and had fun. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me. I, I truly appreciate it. For my listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, hit that five-star rating. Um, Six-star if you're in the Tokyo Dome. That's my wrestling reference. And uh, comment, share, just uh, get the show out there. And uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too.